about 10 years ago, we were living in Perth, and we'd popped back to England for Christmas, and my whole family had gathered at a, uh, a, a, a favoured park of my family. My grandparents loved this park, it was beautiful conifer trees, a little lake where you could go pedaloing in the, in the summertime. And uh, we'd gathered, and as we, I'd gone in the car with my mum, and as we got out the car, she handed me a, uh, it, it wasn't a Coles bag, it was a Tesco's bag or some English equivalent, and she handed me this bag, and, uh, and she said to me, uh, would you mind just holding Grandad for me? As we had gathered that day uh, in this park to, uh, illegally I may add, bury him uh, behind a conifer tree, but my mum said it was okay, and I was still at the age where well, if your mum says it's okay, then it must be okay, and... So we snuck behind a tree near a bench where my grandma's name was on a, on a plaque. Apparently, granddad wasn't worthy of a bench. But uh, we, we, we emptied him out. Well, actually, because I worked for a church once upon a time, but was now a maths teacher, it was my job to empty him out uh, behind this, this conifer while my two brothers stood bodyguards to check no one would arrest us for performing this illegal activity. And I emptied it out on the ground, and uh, we spent a little bit of time kind of remembering granddad uh, and all the, uh, the good times we had with him. Uh, and again, we comforted by the fact my mum said it was okay and we're sure that's fine. And, and there's two things I learned that day. Uh, one is that if you're going to empty your granddad out, make sure you're downwind. Uh, otherwise, you'll never, you'll never see those shoes in the same way again. Um, the second one is, is that this passage here today has, has the idea of grief spot on. It has the emotional complexity of grief and it also has great hope in it. Uh, and that was a great comfort to us as we thought about the death of my grandfather, though he didn't share the belief that this passage has. This passage has the emotion. I'm just going to put this down. This is, this is just some dirt from my garden, by the way. I'm just going to, it's, it's all that it is. Just an illustration. Uh, this passage has its spot on. And so what we're going to do is we're going to go through the story again, and then we're going to highlight three contrasting ideas that Jesus manages to, to pull together. Uh, so that's, that's the plan. We're going to go through the story. It all starts in verse 1 of chapter 11 when one of Jesus' best buddies falls ill. This, this guy is called Lazarus. And we get some interesting eyewitness details from verses 1 and 2. He was from a town a, a few uh, kilometers away from Jerusalem where he lived with his sisters Mary and Martha. Not wanting to leave their seriously ill brother alone, Mary and Martha get someone else to go to find Jesus this guy who they've been hanging out with for a while, who they had some, some trust in being able to do some good stuff. Now, when Jesus hears about the sickness, he waits. He waits in a way that only someone with complete control could wait. Two days pass by, it says in verse 6. Then he says to his disciples in verse 11 that his friend and theirs is now asleep, meaning that verse 14, Lazarus is now dead. Just imagine if hearing from Balmoral that the queen was very sick, that if one member of the royal family said, actually, I'm going to wait a couple of days before going. The royal family has done some pretty bad stuff in the last 30 years, but this is one thing they'd never live down. If they waited for two days, but Jesus can, why? Because he's in complete control. And he, Jesus does it so that the disciples may believe. It will display the glory of God, Jesus says in verse 4. And that Jesus also will be glorified through what's going to happen. Despite the possible dangers of what lies ahead of them in Jerusalem, and the number of times it says it was near Jerusalem, we know we're only a couple of chapters away from Jesus heading to his death in Jerusalem. Despite the dangers that lay ahead for them, they go off to Mary and Martha's house 
now that Lazarus is definitely dead. Well, that's the background to the story, and the real action starts when Jesus is near Bethany. It's now been at least six days since Jesus heard the news, four days since Lazarus died. Now, with Bethany being so close to Jerusalem, many may have taken the day off work to go to uh, visit the tomb. Perhaps some made a long weekend of it, come down to visit Mary and Martha, comfort them, stay in the local Bethany uh, motel. And it's one of the enduring and endearing effects of the gospel is that we get to see little snippets of background actors and characters like a Mary and a Martha who, as you piece them together across all four gospels, give quite a colorful portrait of some of the first century individuals. Typically, Martha is the real active one, running out to meet Jesus where, she is, where he is away from the tomb and the home, while Mary stays at home seated with the mourners. And Martha's constant churning of activity leads her to, uh, to probe Jesus uh, and, uh, and ask uh, him things in verse 21. Ha, ha, have a look at verse 21. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that God will give you whatever you ask of him. Martha here and Mary later in verse 32 share the same conviction that if Jesus had been here earlier, he could have healed Lazarus before he died. But surely, they seem to know, he couldn't do anything now. Death is, is too much, too big for him. Well, Jesus reassures them. Your brother will rise again. She seems to instantly think that that will be on the final day when the Messiah comes in all his glory and all the dead are raised to life. That was the firmly held Jewish belief of the day. But Jesus means, yes, he'll rise again then and now. Now, how is Jesus able to know this? Well, he boldly states in the next verse, I am the resurrection and the life. So far in John's gospel, we've seen that Jesus says some outrageous I am statements. I'm the good shepherd, the true gate, the light of the world, the bread of life, the living water. Sort of harmless, ridiculous things that someone could make up as part of a, a college drinking game at university. The woman has just lost her brother, for goodness sake, and Jesus is claiming to be the resurrection and the life. There is a queue now to visit the uh, vigil of Queen Elizabeth's coffin that is long enough to be a scene from space. But imagine as you got your turn to file through and see the coffin, if you said, uh, don't worry, guys, <laughs> I'm the resurrection and the life, it would be outrageously insensitive. Yet that's exactly what Jesus does here amongst a crowd of mourners and by a tomb. It's either poor comedy, pathologically cruel, or, and here's the kicker, the claim is potentially cataclysmic. If Jesus is not trying to make a joke or be mean, the only option left is that he is changing the way the whole system of life, then death, operates. Jesus seems to think he has the ability to bust up the natural and normal order of life followed by death. See how he follows his claim up in verse 25 and 26. He says this, I'm the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me, even though they die, will live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. The first statement is saying that if you believe in Jesus, you'll physically live again, even though you physically will die. The second statement in 26 
seems to say that the believer lives spiritually now and will never spiritually die. What Jesus promises here is not resuscitation or reincarnation, but resurrection, resurrection. Actual eternal life from actual death. This means that even death cannot separate the believer from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Instead, spiritual life starts now and goes on forever, and death is just a door. The coffin is an exitless box for those with belief. And so the question comes to Martha and to us at the end of verse 26. Do you believe this? And this leads to our first contrast in the story, the the contrast that Jesus manages to hold together between belief and disbelief, unbelief. Because Martha clearly knows her stuff. She's been listening in Sabbath school all these years as a child, brings home the little craft that she made every Sunday, knowing that uh, we will rise again. That we'll rise again in the last day, verse 24. But belief in a religious doctrine is not enough. Jesus brushes it aside and says, I'm the resurrection and the life. So she doesn't need to look to the future for the resurrection. She needs to look to Jesus and believe in him. That's the fundamental underpinning of Jesus' promises in verse 25 and 26. The one who believes in me will live. Not an abstract belief in God generally or a a higher power out there somewhere that just will, will bring everyone back to life because that's the kind of thing he does. No, it's not belief in resurrection itself that will do it. No, it's not belief in the Bible that will do it. Certainly not belief in yourself that will do it. It's belief in Jesus. Those who believe in me, he says. Now that may sound at first glance immensely exclusive in a world and an age that wants everything to be inclusive. But actually more than a second glance will show it's the most inclusive claim of any religion. It's not that you have to be born in a certain country or have a certain genetic lineage. It's not that you have to do a certain set of things or visit anywhere or do a repeated religious activity several times a day to be, uh, have the resurrection. All you need to do, whether you are the queen or someone who has the most messed up, uh, abused life in the world that we would want to cry over, both spectrum uh, on the spectrum of the human existence can do this one simple, very inclusive thing. Believe in Jesus. And that is why Christianity has spread further around the globe than any other faith, including atheism. Because it's so inclusive. It flies wide open the doors of belief to anyone and everyone. And in doing so, resurrection is available to all. No matter how dead you may feel inside. But it must be belief in Jesus. Well, Jesus pushes Martha's belief, and she responds correctly. Verse 27, yes, Lord, she replies. I I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, the one coming into the world. So she gets it right, but note that it does have to be a personal belief. She doesn't say, yes, we believe as a culture that you're the Messiah, or our family has this faith, or I went to a church that once believes that sort of thing. It has to be a personal belief. She said, I believe you're the Messiah. It's mine. 
And just at this climax of the conversation, our attention gets shifted away from Martha and Jesus, quite away from the tomb and the town. Uh, It gets shifted back to uh, Mary and the tomb. As Mary now, who's just heard that Jesus is actually here, but the very active Martha's kind of gone out to meet him, she hears and the crowd goes with her, not wanting to leave the mourning sister alone. And Mary goes out to meet Jesus, wondering what's going on. And when Jesus sees her, and notices her tears and the mourning of the people, he is deeply moved, verse 33. Greatly disturbed in spirit. He asks, where have you laid him? And they say, Lord, come and see. And then we get what is in the NIV, certainly famously the, most, the shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. And at this, people marveled. And they say, see how they loved him. While others begin to wonder, well, wait a minute, why didn't he come early and fix the problem if he's so concerned? And here we get the second big contrast. The first is between belief and disbelief. The second one that Jesus managed to hold together is between humanity and divinity. Between how he's so human and so God all in one. And we see his humanness in his pure and complete compassion. In his personal interaction and his own grief at the death of a dear friend. Indeed, the the phrase deeply moved in verse 3 is is more like deeply outraged. This angers him. The great compassion, weeping at the sight of the tomb of a dead friend. More than that, weeping at the grief of those who see the tomb, not just his own personal grief. And any of us who've lost a loved one know this complex and conflicting anger and sorrow at what seems like a constantly rising tide of death in the world. Jesus is extremely and fully and unavoidably human, and perfectly so. That's his humanity, but he still has his divinity, his, his godness, and that's seen as he approaches the tomb. He demands that the stone be rolled away in verse 39, which is interesting because if Surely if Jesus is fully God, couldn't he just do a kind of Darth Vader, kind of just move the the tombstone all by himself? But why can't he do that? Well, it shows that Jesus isn't here for some cheap human trick. He's not here for showmanship. He's not here to do things that we can do, only quicker. He's not here to do the credible or the possible, but the incredible and the impossible. He's not just here as a human with just human concerns and he's kind of stronger. No, he's not here to move a boulder. Any old human can do that, but to grab life from death back into life again. Now, the the request to move the stone meets some objection from the, the dead man's sister. You can't quite tell still what's about to happen. This whole thing isn't playing out like she thought it would. It's because, you know, like the the filthy sports gear that's been left in a school locker over the holidays in the heat of the sun, and you don't want to open that door, uh, this four-day-old decaying corpse won't smell so good. The NIV politely says that Martha thinks there'll be a bad odor. Uh, The NRSV uh, uh, says that that there will be quite a stench. Uh, I like the old RSV, the, the, new, uh, the, the King James Version, that just says, he stinketh, uh, which, is, which is great. But, but rotting flesh is of no concern to Jesus. Instead, he promises 
You're all going to see the glory of God right now. So he prays to heaven, looking upward, showing that he's working in tandem with God the Father. And then John records that in a loud voice, Jesus calls out, Lazarus, come out! One preacher I listened to on this commented of of how a schoolboy once observed that it was lucky Jesus said, Lazarus, come out, because if he just said, come out, the whole cemetery would have risen back to life that day. And I think the schoolboy's quite right. For upon speaking those words, death's grip on his friend Lazarus is, is ignored. And we see one of the strangest phrases in the Bible. There's, there's plenty that people object to in the Bible. It doesn't make sense. It's inconsistent. It doesn't fit with today's culture. But, but this is a verse that doesn't make sense. And we own up to it. Verse 44. The dead man came out. <laughs> the dead man came out. It's extraordinary. Jesus' words, that he is the resurrection and the life, are backed up then with his works as he raises someone back to life. And we see that Jesus is extremely and fully and unavoidably God. So Jesus' humanity means that he shows compassion at death. His divinity means that he commands death. His fully godness means he acts against death, while his full humanness means he's angered by death that the God of the universe feels what we do, or that someone just like us has conquered death for us, it's a tough call which is more comforting when we are grieving. Either way, it's a win-win. We need to keep both truths in full view when we think of a God who loves us. Well, with the tomb open and the dead man called out, he comes out, and John, giving again what feels like must be an eyewitness account, describes the problem of the grave clothes. Lazarus has enough to kind of penguin his way out, but he's so tightly bound that in verse 44, he has to say, look, unbind him, let him go. He must be pretty stuffy in there. Listen to what one commentator says at this point about the story of Lazarus. The silence of Lazarus is more deafening than the cry of Jesus. The reader is left asking, how did Lazarus feel? Have you ever thought how he must have felt? as he stood blinking in the sunlight, looking anew on a world from which he'd, been ta- which he'd taken his last leave. Nothing could ever be the same as it was before. Well, with the story finished, it leaves us with our final contrast. We see uh, belief and unbelief in the story. We see Jesus being fully human and fully God. Finally, we see life and death. We may be skeptical about a resurrection, and rightly so. It's not something that happens very often. I've got several friends who are doctors. We live near uh, Charlie's Hospital. And it's not often as you chat to them about the week. Hey, how's your week? Oh, yeah, good. A couple of guys going back to life. One. No, it just doesn't, it doesn't happen. We must be skeptical. They were skeptical too. Even Martha, who believes that Jesus is the Son of God, thinks if, but surely you can't bring him back to life. If you were here when he was ill, you could have done something, but not now. One question could be within our skepticism is, well, maybe Lazarus wasn't really dead. Just having, maybe it was Father's Day, he slipped into a long nap as dads are allowed to do on Father's Day and just never bothered to wake up again. Eventually they rolled him into a tomb. Well, verse 14, Lazarus is dead. Verse 21, my brother would not have died. Verse 32, he would not have died. Verse 37, could not have kept this man from dying. Verse 39, the dead man. Verse 44, the dead man came out. It's pretty clear he's dead, right? Jesus says that he is the resurrection and the life, and then he resurrects him and gives him life. So the the question, verse 26, is do we believe that? 
we might not think we are a lost sheep in need of the good shepherd, which Jesus says he is. We might not consider ourselves spiritually hungry or thirsty in need of the bread of life or living water, which Jesus says I am. We might not think we live in darkness and need Jesus to be the light of the world, which he says, I am. But surely we can't be foolish enough to think that I'm not going to die. Therefore, I don't need the resurrection and the life. Surely we can't be so short-sighted. Death is everywhere. Cemeteries are only getting fuller. Funeral homes and cars and services will not be affected by inflation or financial decline. Do you know the difference between being born at King Eddie's, being sick at Charlie's, and being buried at Caracatta? Do you know what the difference is? It's not a matter of money or luck. It's just a matter of time. So you see, our lives are like cut flowers that you give to a girl you fancy. They may be impressive for a while, but in the end they're destined for death, and the girl throws them away, and they're forgotten. Our lives are like a child blowing bubbles. They cause great joy for the briefest of moments, floating around so free in the wind, but sooner or later they pop and they are gone and disappear and the child remembers it no more. This is what makes death so unique. Many problems in the world we could fix if we had the right time, infrastructure and resources. But the world's minds, money and military cannot stop death for a second if it wanted to. So the question for us is, what is our plan beyond the grave? We may have a five, ten-year financial plan with an advisor, but what's our hundred-year plan? This passage isn't asking what our life insurance is like, but what's our death insurance like? What is our plan for death? Jesus offers to be the resurrection and the life for you if you believe in him. And then he raises a man back to life. And this contrast then is brought to the front just a few chapters later when we see Jesus dying. The resurrection and the life curiously faces death in the same way that the one who offers living water that you'll never thirst from on the cross. What does he say? A thirst. It's a real contrary moment, the cross. But there we see him taking our spiritual deadness, our sin with him that we may spiritually live forever even though we'll die. And as his own tomb is emptied three days later, we know he's dealt with both our spiritual and our physical death once and for all. And where is Lazarus? You know, the the commentator questioned, have you ever wondered how Lazarus felt? In some ways, I reckon Lazarus was probably a little annoyed. I just, no anesthetic. He'd already died once. He's like, are you kidding me? I'm going to go through that all again? Boy, thanks, Jesus. That's real great. I was just hanging out in heaven with everyone, and now I'm back. Sure, okay, if it brings you glory, good one. But for Lazarus, he would one die day again, but Jesus never does. So what's your hundred-year plan? What's our death insurance like? My grandfather, the same one whose ashes I sprinkled under that conifer several years ago, used to have about three jokes that he'd tell on rotation. Seems to be a trait that granddads have. And one of them was that he said he should never visit a doctor who has dead pot plants in his foyer. Because if he can't keep a plant alive, there's not much hope for you. He got about the same response when he told it. It's not very funny. I guess the same is true with eternity. We shouldn't put our trust in something to keep us alive for eternity unless it can raise a dead person 
back to life in front of them. And here in Cotterstone, in the next six months, people will sit on that beach and say to themselves, ah, this is the life. But it's not, he's the life. People around here will own a nice corner block with a pool and a lovely upstairs, downstairs, all-in-one living area. And they'll say, this is the life. But they're wrong. Jesus is the life. People may go on holidays internationally now that the borders have opened up. And they say, this is the life. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me, even though they die, will live, and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? I'll pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that you don't just say big stuff, but you do it. Help us to believe that and not put our hope and trust in anything else in this world that claims to be the life, but only in him. And especially as we face death, as in this next five, ten years, we stand around the graves of friends and family and consider our own grave one day, would we trust in Jesus as the resurrection and the life? Amen.